Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode eight the season finale of season four of criminology so morph it's kind of hard to believe we're wrapping up season four already and i think this has been a really enlightening season and i think i speak for you morph when we say we hope the audience uh thinks that as well i know we've gotten some really good positive feedback about kind of the deep dive, the insider information into what is really some amazing technology. Yeah, I agree with you, Mike. It's been really cool learning about how these cases are getting solved and the technology behind it. And I think it's just a a glimpse of what's going to be happening in the future. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's been some great work in 2018. I think... I don't even want to say I think. I don't think there's any doubt that there are going to be many more crimes solved probably even in the next month or so by the end of this year. But especially as you think 2019, 2020, you heard somebody say it more. If I think it was in the the last episode that we did where in one of the press conferences, someone said, you know, if, if you're a criminal and you thought you've gotten away with something, you better think again, right? DNA, Parabon, GEDmatch, genetic genealogy, all these things that they're using, there have to be people out there in the world, not not just the United States, in the world that have committed crimes that are literally shaking in their boots. Yeah, I think it'll be cool to see which cases are the ones that get solved. If there are some big cases that we've been waiting for, like maybe Zodiac that turns 50 years old this year, or, you know, a lot of smaller ones that we haven't heard about in a while. I'd be really looking forward to see what which ones get solved. Oh, Zodiac would be, I mean, that would be Golden State Killer-esque, I think. You know, in, in the terms of how well-known the case is. So in this final episode, we have some more cases solved in 2018 using these methods that we've been talking about. But before we get into those, let's take a quick minute to give some shout outs to our newest Patreon supporters. We had Christine Anson, Starla Sims, Jennifer Autry jumped out at our highest level, Michelle Harriage, and Kimberly Wright. So amazing big time shout outs to all of those folks and more if we say it all the time but we appreciate the support that we get you know from our patreon folks both the new and and those that continue to support us month after month but on top of that right there are a lot of people supporting us in other ways on social media telling their friends all of that stuff is amazing i can't reiterate enough what mike just said the support that you give us really allows us to keep bringing you this content that we do. And if you'd like to help support the show through Patreon and get early commercial free access to new episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash criminology. And another reminder about the books. We've had a lot of people on social media asking questions about our books based on the first couple seasons of the podcast. And they're, they're both out right now in ebook form and paperback and of course those books are criminology true crime podcast presents the case of the zodiac killer and criminology true crime podcast presents the case of the golden state killer you can find those books on amazon or other online booksellers we're going to be at CrimeCon this summer in new orleans in 2019 and we hope to see you there if you have copies of your book Feel free to bring them along with you, and we'll be happy to sign them. We just want to say thanks and give a big shout-out to our listeners and fans. 
who voted for us to put us in the finals for Best True Crime Podcast of 2018 on the big list compiled by discoverpods.com. We're alongside some really great true crime podcasts. If you'd like to see Criminology advance to the finals, we hope you'll vote one more time in the finals by visiting discoverpods.com. We'll also post a link to their voting page on our social media. And big thanks to discoverpods.com for compiling such a great list and including Criminology on it. And congratulations to all of the finalists. All right, Morph. Now that we've gotten all that out of the way, let's jump right into this episode. And we're going to start it off with an East Coast murder that was solved in 2018. And that's the 1992 murder of 25-year-old school teacher Christy Ann Mirak. This murder occurred in Lancaster County, PA. Christy Mirak grew up alongside a brother and a sister in the coal town of Shimokin, Pennsylvania, which had a population of about 10,000. As kids, Christy would oftentimes make her siblings play school, and she always got to be the teacher. And as Christy grew up, that was her dream. Her dream was to become a real teacher. Along the way, she attended college at Millersville University. Christy worked odd jobs. She waitressed at a country club. She was a cashier at a pharmacy. But Christy worked those jobs to support herself until she could become a teacher and fulfill her dream. She was very focused on only that, the dream of becoming a school teacher. By age 25, Christy's dream came true. In September of 1992, she became a full-time sixth grade teacher at Roarstown Elementary School, about 80 miles west of Philadelphia. Christy being young and single and trying to budget, along with a female roommate, moved into a townhome in the Greenfield Estates Complex on Patriot Drive in Lancaster. The townhome was perfect for Christy, and the complex was nice and safe. It was located only eight miles from Christy's school, which meant Christy would have a 15-minute drive to work. And Christy was really excited about her future, because everything was falling into place for her. On the morning of December 21st, Christy's roommate left for work, and Christy planned to leave at 7.45. After 8 a.m., Christy hadn't shown up for work. Her students began to pile into the classroom. And 10 minutes after the class was supposed to begin, there was no sign of Christy. And this wasn't like her, not to show up for work without calling. School staff tried to call Christy at home, but she didn't answer. Concerned, school principal Harry Newman decided to personally drive to Christy's apartment to see if she was there and if she was okay. Principal Newman pulled up outside of Christy's townhome and walked to her door. As he reached the door, he saw that it was slightly ajar. He nudged it open and called Christy's name, but didn't get a reply. Principal Goodman called out again as he stepped inside. As he walked a few steps in, he saw Christy's body lying on the living room floor, nude from the waist down. The shocked principal stood there for a second trying to comprehend what he had seen. After a moment, he raced out of the townhouse to a neighbor's to call police, closing the door behind him. Police arrived a few minutes later and met the distraught principal outside of Christie's home, and when they tried to enter it, they found it locked and had to kick the door in to get in. Apparently, the principal locked the door when he pulled it shut behind him, or it was already locked when he found it ajar. Police entered Christie's townhome cautiously, they didn't know whether or not Christie's killer was in the home. They quickly secured it and checked to see if Christie was alive, but it was quickly obvious she was not. The house was a mess, and it was easy to see that Christie had put up a fight with her killer. Detectives arrived and started the official investigation into Christie's murder. When they examined her body, they found that although she was nude from the waist down, she was wearing gloves. It appeared as if her shirt had been pushed up. Christie's body showed signs of trauma to the head and neck. There was a cutting board lying close to her head, and scattered around the living room were the gifts that Christie had been wrapping and planned to give to her students. On one of the walls, there were scuff marks from Christie's feet that led investigators to think that Christie, while being choked or grabbed from behind, had kicked her feet out during the struggle in an effort to free herself from her attacker. 
Police theorized that Christy was leaving for work when someone she knew, or a stranger, came through her front door. A struggle immediately ensued, and trying to fight off her attacker, Christy grabbed the cutting board to use as a weapon, but the killer had taken it from Christy and used it on her. Christy had literally fought to her death. Police found semen from Christy's killer and collected it into evidence. An autopsy would later reveal that Christy was beaten and strangled to death, as well as being raped. During the strangulation, the killer used both his hands and an article of Christie's clothing. Police wouldn't reveal what article of clothing was used to strangle Christie. Christie's jaw was also broken, and her elbows and knees had been bruised and scuffed. Police reached out to Christie's roommate, but she told them that everything was fine when she left for work, and she couldn't provide any helpful information. Police knew that the killer struck during a 45-minute window between 7 a.m. when Christie's roommate left for work and 7.45 when Christie was due to leave for work. Neighbors were shocked. This kind of thing just didn't happen there. Lancaster County was a peaceful and safe community. As police questioned residents, they found that most people hadn't seen or heard anything unusual that morning. However, a few clues did surface. One witness reported that they saw a medium-sized white or maybe faded silver sports car, and they said that the car had very distinct black louvers covering the back window, possibly a Dodge Daytona or Dodge Shadow, or possibly a Toyota parked across the street from Christie's home. They saw a muscular white male step out of the parked car, and this person began walking towards Christie's townhome. But the witness didn't see exactly where the man went. The car was gone by the time police arrived at the scene. Another witness told police about a suspicious man walking on Pitney Road, a short distance from Christie's home. He was in his late 20s, 225 to 250 pounds, stocky with a muscular build and stringy long medium brown hair that hung to his chest. He was clean-shaven and had deep-set eyes. He was wearing a blue, white, and black faded shirt and blue jeans. Police later released a composite sketch of the man, but he was never identified. Christie's family was devastated and heartbroken by the news of her murder. They couldn't understand how or why someone would do something so horrible to Christie. The principal informed the staff at Roarstown Elementary School of what happened. And Christie's co-workers were shocked as well. Then came the challenge of breaking the news to Christie's students that this teacher that they had come to appreciate so much was dead. The school called in extra staff, counselors, and even clergy to help the students cope with and try to make sense of what happened to their beloved teacher, Miss Mirak. Police soon realized that they didn't know much at all about Christie's friends or any potential boyfriend she had. They reached out to the Merrick family to see what they knew, but they too knew very little. Christie was a very private person that didn't talk much about her personal life or who she dated. As detectives dug deeper into Christie's life, they discovered there was more than met the eye regarding her personal and dating life. On the day of Christie's murder, a man showed up at Roarstown Elementary asking to speak with Christy. At the time this man arrived, the entire staff was busy dealing with grief counseling for students. The man told school personnel that he had been out of town and he really needed to talk to Christy. When the staff told the man that Christy had been killed, the man said he hadn't heard this and he began to ask for details of her murder. At that point, the school staff became suspicious of this man. They asked him to leave, but later on, the same man called the school and asked if he himself could speak with a grief counselor. Due to the man's suspicious behavior, the school alerted the police and they identified him as a local man in his mid-40s. Once investigators had the man's name, they asked him to come in for questioning Christie's murder. He agreed and willingly talked to police. The man, who was married, reluctantly told detectives that he and Christie had been having an affair for almost four years. He also added that he had met her at a local bar and that they soon began dating afterwards. 
Despite the secret affair which Christie and the man kept to themselves, he insisted that he had not killed Christie. Police investigated him, and using polygraph tests and other means, ruled him out. The investigators wanted to rule out everyone that they possibly could, and they even considered whether Principal Harry Newman, who reported finding Christie's body, might somehow be involved in her murder. The principal was shocked and saddened to learn that police thought he could have had anything to do with her murder. But he agreed to cooperate and was soon ruled out. Police were stymied. By the following year, they had conducted over 500 interviews. They had done exhaustive background checks on at least 40 persons of interest in Christie's murder. Blood and hair samples were taken from a 31-year-old local man that was considered a top suspect by police, but the samples cleared him. In April of 1993, about four months after Christie's murder, her family, still desperate for answers, announced that they were offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Christie's killer. But the reward went unclaimed as Christie's killer managed to escape detection. As the years dragged on, Police continued searching for Christie's killer and in total conducted more than 1,500 interviews and eliminated more than 60 men as suspects using forensic testing to compare blood types and body fluids. On or about May 23, 2002, a Sunday Lancaster news staff writer got a call from a man asking about Merrick and suggested that a story should be done about her. The caller refused to identify himself, but he sounded to the reporter like he might be in his mid-thirties, and talked hurriedly, like he wanted to get something off of his chest quickly. The unknown caller said that he and some buddies had been sitting around drinking the night before, and got to talking about Chandra Levy, the intern of former Congressman Gary Condit, whose skeletal remains had been found in a Washington park on May 22nd. The caller said the newspaper should do a story on women like her who slept around with a lot of different men, and who lived a life that a lot of people didn't know about. The caller then connected the case of Christy Merrick and noted that the 10-year anniversary of Merrick's murder was coming up in seven months. The caller said that he knew Merrick and had been friends with her brother Vince. He claimed the Nova Barn on property owned by the Merrick family, where Christy would take men. The caller kept saying the newspaper should do a story on women like her. The reporter asked him what he meant by that, and he responded by calling Christie a derogatory name, suggesting she was promiscuous. Women like that did not deserve to die, the caller said. Then the caller added, but what did they expect? The man abruptly hung up the call, and there was no way to trace it. The caller was never identified. The FBI stated that the caller may have been Christie's murderer, and that the call was possibly due to his remorse coming out, and that he was trying to rationalize the homicide. Along the way, the FBI aided in Christie's case by providing behavioral analysis and a profile of Christie's killer. They felt that the killer knew Christie and her routine and that the killer was a quiet person that lived a lifestyle that wouldn't call attention to him. In the fall of 2002, as the 10-year anniversary of Christie's murder approached, Christie's mom, Jerry, reached out to local newspapers to get Christie's story back in the news. Jerry was very sick, and she was battling cancer, and she feared that she would die without ever knowing who killed Christie. The newspapers took notice of Jerry's efforts, and they ran an article titled A Mother's Dying Wish to coincide with the 10-year anniversary of the murder. But Christie's mom wouldn't make it to the 10-year anniversary. She died in November of 2002, never knowing who killed her daughter. Christie's brother Vince took up the fight for justice in Christie's case. He teamed up with the brother of another murdered Lancaster County girl, Lindy Sue Beekler, and together they started a website. They also rented a billboard on a busy highway to handle and encourage tips and information that the public might have. While Vince's efforts did generate some buzz and a few tips, No solid information came in, and Christie's case continued to linger. The killer's DNA profile was entered in a CODIS with no hits, but the DNA would still be of use to investigators. 
In 2017, after hearing about the revolutionary work Parabon was doing, creating composite sketches based on DNA profiles of killers, Lancaster County detectives thought that they may be able to help in Christie's case, and they hired Parabon to create a snapshot composite of Christie's killer. With the Lancaster County District Attorney's Office heading the case and no arrests made in the 1992 murder of Christy Merrick, prosecutors now turn to new methods of DNA testing. We just weren't getting anywhere and we continue to uh, look at potential persons of interest and continue to eliminate them. Back to the drawing board, D.A. Stedman and investigators turned to Parabon Labs, a company specializing in DNA phenotyping. The process takes DNA and predicts physical appearance and ancestry from unidentified evidence. Based on the genetic code, which dictates your physical appearance, they're able to essentially put themselves back in the position as if they were a witness. It's a genetic witness. Uh, to, to the crime. What you see are three scientific approximations of what Merrick's killer may have looked like at ages 25, 45, and 55, respectively. The DA asks that you keep in mind these are not exact replicas, as various environmental factors come into play. What the analysis concluded is that the killer has light skin, brown eyes, and brown hair. You know, it has solved murder cases and horrible cases across the country, and we're hoping it does it here. That snapshot provided by Parabon was useful to investigators in Christie's case. But as we've mentioned before, it's just a tool. It couldn't point directly to a suspect. But in 2018, Parabon reached back out to Lancaster County investigators and offered their brand new genetic genealogy services to them. And luckily, investigators took Parabon up on their offer because in a matter of weeks, that genealogy would point to a specific person. After learning the identity of the man suspected by Parabon to be Christie's killer, police placed him under surveillance. While at a public event, he disposed of gum in a water bottle, and police quickly snatched it up. DNA testing would reveal that his DNA was a 100% match to Christie's killer. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming. Uh, again, apologies for uh, holding you up a little bit. Uh, this is a fluid situation, and uh, we just wanted to have things organized before we came in and spoke to you. So, as you said, I'm Craig Stedman. I'm the district attorney in Lancaster County. Um, there could be a lot more people standing up here. Uh, so many people have worked on this case. But today, we are announcing the arrest of Raymond Charles Rowe for the murder of Christy Murak from December 21st, 1992. He is being charged with one count of criminal homicide by Detective Christopher Erb. From my office, a Lancaster County detective from the DA's office, he was arrested today at his home and will be taken to Lancaster County Prison. Uh, he will not be eligible for bail in this offense, offense for this offense. Um, I will go through some of the facts of the case. Um, I'm going to allow, uh, ask uh, Steve Armitrout, who's the CEO of Parabon um, Labs, to, to talk a little bit about his critical role. In, in this case and making getting us here to this point, as well as uh, CC Moore, um, she'll be she'll be coming in through Skype from Parabon as well. Um, state police may uh, will offer them to make some comments, and then I'll have some final comments and, and open things up for questioning. Um, before I begin, I want to emphasize that Mr. Rowe is presumed innocent until he's been convicted in a court of law. He is absolutely uh, enjoys the cloak of innocence, and that will remain. Um, until such time as we change that and we get a, a, a conviction in this case. Um, the history of this case, uh, it goes back a long ways. It was shortly after um, I started here. It started with the East Lampeter Township Police Department, uh, Ron Savage, uh, Renee Schuler, and Joe Edgel, who's present today. Um, the state police have done and continue to do a tremendous amount of work on this. Chad Roberts had it. The FBI uh, has assisted with us over the years. Um, and we took this case uh, from the East Lampeter Township Police Department in my office in 2016, and that was assigned to Detectives Erb and Martin and uh, ADA Wilson. Uh, worked closely with them over the past uh, couple years on this. Uh, Christy Murak was uh, 25 years old. She was a sixth grade teacher at Roarstown Elementary. Um, she was residing at Greenfield Estates at 2071 William Penn Way, and a roommate was named Mary Lesko. The two of them lived there and shared the place. Uh, by all, uh, you know, she was a teacher. 
That's what she was. Um, on the morning of 12, uh, 21, 1992, her roommate left at approximately 7 in the morning to go to work. Christy Murak was getting ready uh, for, for her to go to work. She had some packages, um, some Christmas. It was Christmas time. She didn't appear. Uh, her principal, um, Harry Goodman, became concerned uh, because she had not shown up for work um, and couldn't reach her with numerous efforts. He had uh, tried to communicate with her and wasn't able to reach her. Around 9.15 in the morning, um, he actually went to her residence, um, concerned for her well-being, and he received no answer. He did see that the uh, door was ajar a little bit. He announced his, his presence and went in and saw a shocking scene of Christy Mirak uh, unresponsive um, on the floor in her living room. Went to a neighbor's residence and uh, immediately called 911, at which time the police responded to the scene. Actually had to um, kick the door in because the door had been was now had been locked, been pulled behind him. Um, it became obvious uh, looking at the scene that a struggle had taken place uh, in inside the doorway. There were scuff marks on the floor um, and on the, the back of the inside back of the door. The packages were were strewn about. Um, it appeared uh, uh, as well that she had been sexually assaulted. Um, her underwear and her pants had been uh, removed, her shoes were removed, um, the clothes on her torso had been uh, pushed up. Um, in addition, they located a cutting board, a wooden cutting board um, close to her head. There was, a, a, there was blood, her face was uh, distorted, and, and um, she had suffered um, a, a brutal beating as well. Um, there's a couple things that, uh, that stand out that should be noted. She had her jacket on, she had her gloves on, um, and with combined with the scuff marks and the indications of the struggle that we have at the scene, we're confident that she was assaulted uh, um, almost instantly um, at the doorway, either surprised or, or instantly, and it also uh, would appear from the scene that, that she fought for her life. The next day, Dr. Wayne Ross, the forensic pathologist for Lancaster County, at that time and, and still there today, um, did an autopsy of, of Christie. He noted, among many other things, uh, blunt trauma to her neck, to her back, to her upper chest, to her face. Her jaw had been fractured, and the cause of death was strangulation. Um, there was evidence consistent with a sexual assault, consistent with what I had described before. Um, and he swabbed a number of areas from her body to include the, her, her vagina, her anal region, her back, on the inside of her legs, and uh, her oral cavity. Um, and these areas showed evidence of uh, sexual assault as well to Dr. Ross. Processing the scene, the Pennsylvania State Police, um, one of the things they collected was uh, a section of the carpet, um, which was directly under where her body was found, um, um, located in the living room. These swabs um, and, and things they collected were sent to the Pennsylvania State Police Crime Lab, um, where eventually they were able to create a profile of the suspect and um, they found actually spermatozoa in uh, a male suspect and um, a DNA profile was, was created. I also entered this into CODIS, which is a national database um, that has DNA profiles for convicted uh, criminals for certain offenses, as well as unknown um, offenders of unsolved crimes. And to date, um, no matches have been found. As I said, in 2016, uh, my office took this case, Detective Herbs, Herb and Martin, and um, eventually became aware through uh, actually a seminar uh, of Parabon Nanolabs and what services they could provide. In, in late 2016, um, we uh, discussed with them what many of you came before in the fall. We had uh, a press conference trying to uh, generate information on this case on the phenotyping which goes into the makeup of, of, of an individual suspect. What we're looking for is there is the ancestry, you can, characteristics for hair, um, skin tone, uh, eye color, and amount of freckles. And, and I'm not going to go through all that. We did that before. We have that. Um, but the idea there, of course, was to generate some publicity and consistent with the fact that, that we were going to stay on this case. Um, Having done that, in March of uh, 2016, we submitted an extract from the carpet that I had described before that the state police had collected um, from the crime scene underneath uh, the body. They were able to work up um, the phenotyping, um, and, and we received a report from them that we subsequently made public. We only made it public after 
you know, be quite frank, we didn't have any more leads. We didn't have any more suspects uh, that we could go to. We had cleared. We had one more person that we wanted to uh, eliminate or, or clear or see what it was, and we had done that um, in, the, in the fall of uh, last year. And uh, quite honestly, um, at that point in time, we didn't feel like we had any more arrows uh, in the quiver. And, and it was Parabon was really our last shot. And uh, little did we know at the time that it's turned out to be uh, our best and, and led us to, to today. Because in May of, of 2018, Tom Shaw from the genetic uh, uh, section of, of Parabon contacted us and said, um, the, the new services they could offer about the genetic genealogy. You've seen some of those cases recently. As far as I know, none of them have taken place in Pennsylvania. There's only been a few across the country. But they were talking about offering that service, and we co we contracted with them to do that. We were interested in doing it, and we pursued that. Um, and I think rather than me talking about what they can do and what they did, um, I'm going to turn this to be appropriate time for me to turn it over to Steve Ar Armentrout and let him talk about um, what they did, and then I'm going to talk put it in perspective about what they've actually done in this case, and, and you can turn it over to CC at your convenience. So I'm going to turn it over to Steve. My heart goes out to the Mirac family. I'm sure this must be an emotional day. We all owe a debt to the Lancaster DA's office, the Lancaster Police Department, the detectives, assistant DA that have worked so hard on this case for their tenacity. It's easy for us to forget how impossibly challenging their jobs can be at times and just how much they give us in their service. I appreciate the trust they placed in Parabon inviting us to be part of the investigative team that worked on this. Together we worked efficiently and effectively. It's a model I hope we can replicate across the country. Genetic genealogy is a relatively new technique. Uh, it was thrust into the public spotlight after the Golden State Killer suspect arrest because it was the same technology used there. Since May, we've been offering this to our customers, and Lancaster was among the first to employ it. Most people will applaud the use of genetic genealogy for bringing cases like this to closure, but some will not. Critics have raised privacy concerns over the use of genetic genealogy, mostly founded on misunderstandings about the, how the process works and the data involved. We've created a fact sheet that's available to all of the media here, and Brett can provide that for you. We used a database called GEDmatch. GEDmatch is a publicly available database, a database for genetic genealogy purposes. People proactively upload their DNA files to this. This is not something that happens accidentally. These people are proactively doing it and accepting those terms of service. Uh, and it's a site specifically designed to find genetic relatives. I'd like to take a minute and thank the owners of GEDmatch for continuing to allow law enforcement usage of the site. It's really made possible some of the closures that, that we've seen recently. So we must make our own decisions about privacy matters. Speaking for myself, I've chosen to upload my DNA to GEDmatch, and I've made it publicly available for searching. And this, is, uh, this is something that I do, don't do lightly. But I have no misgivings whatsoever if my DNA is ultimately used by law enforcement to implicate even my closest relatives, if in fact their DNA is found at a crime scene. I do that because I have confidence in the methods that we employ. I have confidence in the DNA matching technology that's been used for years now. And I have confidence in the criminal justice system that if my relative is in fact innocent, they will be cleared in due course. And if they're guilty, justice will be served. I hope others who think to criticize this technology will ponder that before doing so. So in this case, we created a genotype file from DNA found at the crime scene. That database, that file, was uploaded to GEDmatch. The file was set to private. At no time did anyone have access to that genetic file, nor could they see it nor did it show up on any GEDmatch searches. A common misconception is that the raw genetic information is available on GEDmatch, and that's just not true. So it's, uh, you know, it's important to note that um, 
of, of where they led us to a suspect uh, with the entire country, um, it came back to somebody that lived within a few miles uh, of, of where our victim lived uh, back at that time. And, and it is also important to note that we, we had no connection to the defendant from our, from our files. That although um, um, Parabon would not use it and, and to say that their role was crucial is an understatement. We would not be here uh, doing this and, and making this announcement without Parabon. It's as simple as that. And all the work that we've done and, and um, Parabon is, is, has absolutely made the difference. As I said, you know, given that, that they're pointing us in the direction of, of this defendant, um, we needed to do more. We can't arrest based on what we've gotten from, from Parabon. We need to confirm some way through DNA. And in this particular case, as they do in the other cases, many other cases, we had to collect a surreptitious uh, sample from him, uh, from, from DNA. And um, the way we were able to do that was through the great work of the Pennsylvania State Police, uh, Drug Task Force officers helped some, and the FBI provided assistance as well. But the, we had undercover officers from the Pennsylvania State Police who attended a school function um, with Mr. Rowe. Mr. Rowe is also known as DJ Freeze. He was actually providing DJ services um, at that function. And at that function on May 31st of uh, this year, they were able to observe him with a water bottle and connect him to uh, some gum that had been chewed. And they collected that. They collected those uh, samples and sent them to the Pennsylvania State Police crime labs. Uh, and, and the lab started to come back with some numbers for us. The first numbers uh, for the DNA results came back on June the 8th of this year uh, from the carpet sample. Uh, we're talking about the chances of it being, uh, well, you know what, let me read the exact language so I get it and I have the right um, there are, there are some specific numbers. I want to make sure I give you the right ones. Probability of a randomly selected individual, unrelated individual exhibiting the co same combination of the DNA as the DNA that we got from the school function from this defendant for the carpet sample was 1 in 1.3 quadrillion from the Caucasian population, 1 in 2.2 quadrillion from the African-American population, and 1 in 290 trillion from the Hispanic population. Those are obviously... Uh, significantly high numbers, um, but we wanted to do more. As I had mentioned to you before, we had collected the swabs from inside and on her body from the autopsy, um, and we submitted uh, this month the, the swabs from the vaginal reason, the anal reason, uh, her oral, from her uh, back, and from her legs. And on June 22nd, we received results from the Pennsylvania State Police uh, DNA lab who expedited this and done an absolutely outstanding job saying that all five of those samples and, and the carpet, they're all consistent and they all matched this defendant and in the bottle, the water bottle and the gum that had been taken from the school function to a level of statistics, which I'll share with you now. Um, the numbers are significantly higher than the numbers that uh, we have for the carpet. These are the ones, again, inside of her. And the numbers are some numbers that I've never even heard of. Um, the first one would be um, the vaginal swab, um, the probability of randomly selecting an unrelated individual exhibiting this combination of DNA. So from the water bottle from Raymond Rowe, uh, from the, the school function, is approximately one in 200 octillion from the Caucasian population. And just so you know, octillion is a thousand trillion trillion. Um, it is, has, that's a number with 27 zeros behind it. One in 15 nonillion from the African American population and nonillion is even bigger. That's a number with 30 zeros behind it. And one in 74 octillion from the Hispanic population. Um, we have similar results for the, uh, the anal swabs, the leg swabs, um, both sides of her legs, and uh, the lower back, the sample that was taken from her lower back came back to the probability 
of 1 in 1.1 septillion from the Caucasian population, and septillion has 24 zeros behind it, 1 in 59 septillion from the African-American population, which is, yeah, 24 zeros, and 1 in 230 sextillion from the Hispanic population, which has 21 um, zeros in it. Um, the oral swab, a little bit different numbers, uh, 1 in 2.4. Oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me correct this. For the, for the oral swab, it was a little bit different. The profile was obtained from the oral swab. Um, Raymond Rowe and the victim cannot be excluded from potential contributors to this mixture. Of course, you know, it's her, it's her body. Um, based on the results, this combination of DNA types is 1. It's 2.4 septillion times more likely in the Caucasian population. 250 septillion times more likely in the African-American population, and 720 sex, sextillion times, which is 21 zeros, more likely in the Hispanic population to have originated from Raymond C. Rowe and the victim and the victim than if it had originated from the victim and another unknown, unrelated individual. We'll give you a copy of the affidavit so you'll have this information. I can't remember it. I had to read it, and but again... You know, I just wanted to emphasize with you, just it's, we have, what, 7.6 billion people on the planet. You're talking about numbers, 1,000, trillion, trillion. Uh, these are astronomical uh, numbers that, that we've gotten from the Pennsylvania State Police. Um, again, he wasn't arrested because of what Parabon did, but they were absolutely crucial, and I cannot thank them enough for what they've done here um, in identifying him as a suspect. Um, this, this killer uh, was at liberty from this crime, this brutal crime, for longer than Christy Mirak was on this earth alive. And they steered us in, in the path of holding him finally accountable. And as I said, you know, we believe this to be the first in Pennsylvania. I will say that you know, it's a combination with, with Parabon, the hard work, the dedication, determination of the police who have worked on this for decades. Um, this case means a lot to us. It's meant a lot to the people, many of who have retired and moved on in law enforcement. I know it is stuck with me, and I know it is stuck with so many, and so many that are here today um, um, because of the nature of this. And, and just so you know, the same DNA that has led, process that has led to today has cleared many, many suspects in this case beforehand. Um, what I want you to remember and what I definitely need to, to would be remiss not saying is we never let this case go. The DAs before me, um, Joe Mansparker, Don Tataro, and myself, as well as all the police in Lancaster County have come together. This has not been easy. But one of the reasons that, that we've stuck with it and never forgotten is it's so disturbing. We have a truly innocent victim. Her entire life was ahead of her. She had her dreams. She was a positive member of the community. She was a teacher teaching kids, and her life was taken from her brutally. She was not only killed, but she was sexually um, assaulted. And uh, as you heard, and where she was, and her, her, her death was, was absolutely horrible. His apprehension has been long overdue. Um, no one knows this more uh, than the family, and um, you know my heart goes out to them. We obviously have a job to do, uh, um, but they've they've been working with us. It is it is sad that her mother has passed away, uh, and but uh, her her brother Vince asked me to pass along um, that it is a bittersweet sweet day for me and my family. Nothing can change the loss of my sister, Christy, but we can move forward in the right direction. One thing he has asked me to convey to you is that he would uh, respectfully request that he would not be making any statement and no one in his family would be making any statement until the, the, the process has seen its course, until we've come to a conclusion and would appreciate uh, respect for his privacy and would not like to take any questions for him, his father, um, or his family. And I hope, I hope that you respect that. I know that you will. I want to thank the public for responding um, with all the tips we got from the phenotyping that we did. Um, there's a lot more to do. Um, uh, as I said, he's presumed innocent. We've got to, to look back to a case from 1992, look for connections. 
Um, and, and there are a lot of people working on this case right now um, from all over different agencies in Lancaster County. And certainly, you know, one of the biggest events in the criminal justice system in Lancaster County history. And I just want to emphasize, um, and the words aren't going to do justice to it, the absolute collaboration, outstanding collaboration we've had from the Pennsylvania State Police, from my office, from the labs, from the FBI, from the undercovers, from the Lancaster City Police Department who helped with the arrest and did many, many other things working up to this, um, to, to Chris Larson, Christy Wilson, um, East Lampeter Police Department, um, Sean Kofunk from, from the Pennsylvania State Police, um, Corporal McCarty, Kent Schweitzer, and uh, Doug Burig, Major Doug Burig, um, and, and Captain James Fisher from the State Police. And at this time, I'll give them an opportunity to just say a few words if they'd like to. Good evening, my name's uh, Captain Jim Fisher. I'm the commanding officer of Troop J. I'd like to start out by thanking all the law enforcement personnel who were instrumental in apprehending this individual. Uh, the state police did have numerous people involved in this, including lab personnel, our Bureau of Criminal Investigation, and troop personnel. Uh, but I'd be remiss not to specifically mention uh, three individuals that have been involved with this investigation and key to it for numerous years. That's uh, Trooper Roberts, Corporal Koflak, and uh, Corporal McCurdy. Uh, I'd also like to mention we appreciate the diligence of the district attorney and his team for seeking justice for this victim, Christy. She was not forgotten, and the team never gave up on her. In closing, I'd like to express my sorrow for your loss to the family. Thank you. Thank you, Captain. There's others, and, and I, I'm sure I'll probably forget somebody, but uh, former Chief County Detective Mike Landis, um, Joe Giese, other labs assisted with us as well, National Medical Services, um, County Radio is helping us right now, uh, the, the training center. Um, this doesn't happen because of any one person. This is a truly combined arms effort, and I appreciate all the work uh, each and every one of those individuals has done and everybody that I can't name. Um, I'll turn it over for questions in a, in a minute. Um, I just want to, again, be everyone to remember all the countless hours, all the resources that have been devoted to this case for so long, all the sacrifices, all the absolute draining on law enforcement is this has been a marathon. Um, there's just no question about it, but this is also just the beginning today. Um, we are facing, you know, we've known about the brutal death of Christy Mirak, um, but the arrest is when it starts. And we've got a long road ahead of us, but we're going to do it together because I can tell you the law enforcement in Lancaster County, we have, we know we have the obligation to do all we can to make sure that her murderer is brought to justice. Christie's killer was identified as 49-year-old Raymond Charles Rowe, who went by DJ Freeze and was a popular DJ in the Lancaster County area. At the time of Christie's murder, he was a house DJ at the Chameleon Club in Lancaster, about four miles from Christie's home. He also used several addresses that were within three to four miles of Christie's home. But it remains to be seen how or if Christie Merrick and Rowe knew each other. He was arrested on June 25th and subsequently charged with criminal homicide. About a month later, three charges of rape, two charges of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse, and one count of burglary were also filed against Roe. So this guy Roe, a.k.a. DJ Freeze, was a little bit of a local celebrity. He was a very popular wedding DJ. He was on TV. He made videos, he had a website, and he even hosted events for the likes of people like Paris Hilton. He had an extremely flashy appearance. So if you think about it, he was really the exact opposite of what the FBI profile suggested. That profile stated that Christie's killer would avoid attention and Roe sought it out and reveled in it. At the time of his arrest, Roe was married and had at least one child. He had been divorced multiple times. So it will be interesting to hear what his former wives have to say, more if they choose to speak out. Raymond Roe is scheduled to go on trial on May 6th, 2019, according to court records. He's charged with criminal homicide, rape, and related charges. Roe is, of course, considered innocent until proven guilty 
but good luck to him trying to explain his DNA being at the murder scene. The Lancaster County DA said that they will seek the death penalty if Rose found guilty. The murder of Christy Mirak was another case solved in 2018 through the use of genetic genealogy. And we've tried to cover a bunch of them in season four, but as we predicted after the arrest of the Golden State Killer using that method, the dominoes are beginning to fall and they are falling fast. We can't even keep up with the cases that are being solved using this technology. And as we've mentioned, the cases we've discussed this season, they're just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many more that have been solved. There's really no way for us to cover them all on this season of criminology. But we want to briefly talk about a handful of other cases that were solved in 2018 using this same type of technology. 39-year-old Jodine Saren was a mentally challenged but highly functioning woman who lived on her own in a ground-level condo on Swallow Lane in Carlsbad, California. Saren's parents, Arthur and Lois Saren, checked in on her frequently. On February 14, 2007, after being unable to reach her by phone, Saren's parents went to her condo to make sure she was all right. It was about 10 p.m., and Jodine didn't answer the door. Her parents used their key to let themselves in, and once they were inside, Jodine's father walked into his daughter's bedroom to find a man engaged in sexual activity with his daughter. Fearing he had walked into an awkward situation, Arthur Sharon went back out into the living room to give the two some privacy. He told the man to get dressed and get out. He and Lois waited for the duo to exit the bedroom, but they never did. When Arthur Sharon entered the room again, he discovered his daughter had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. According to investigators, the suspect may have escaped through the front door while the Sarens were out of view. There was no signs of forced entry, so Jodine's killer may have been someone she knew, and he may have known that she lived alone. Investigators in Jodine's case teamed up with Parabon to do genetic genealogy, and they were successful in finding the killer. And just the day before we recorded this episode, police announced that genetic genealogy linked David Mabrito to Jodine's murder. Mabrito was a transient who died in 2011. Another case that was solved recently using genetic genealogy was that of Pam Falcons. Pam Falcons was abducted from a video store where she worked in Greenbrier, Arkansas in February 1990. She was brutally murdered. And her body was found the next day at a dump site. But investigators did find DNA on her body and they preserved it. And finally, years later, in October 2018, genetic genealogy found her killer, Edward Keith Renegar. Renegar died from natural causes September 5th, 2002 in Salt Lake City. But he had been a regular customer at that video store. Before his death, Renegar spent time in prison for attacking a woman. And as we've already discussed this season, just because these killers die, it doesn't mean that they go unidentified because their DNA makes a trail that leads to them one way or another. That's right, Mike, because a man named James Otto Earhart was just linked through genetic genealogy to the 1981 rape and murder of a 40-year-old Texas real estate agent named Virginia Freeman. Like Renegar, Earhart was dead. He died in 1999 after being put to death for the murder of nine-year-old Candy Kirtland on May 12, 1987, and investigators dug him up to verify the match. Earhart is also suspected of killing 51-year-old Ruth Richardson Green in 1986. And just earlier this month, the 2001 murder of a 25-year-old University of Central Florida student, Christine Frank, was solved. Christine Frank was shot and killed in her Orlando home. And then fast forward 17 years, almost to the exact date, 38-year-old Benjamin Holmes was arrested for her murder. And another Florida cold case was just solved with the help of Parabon and Jedmatch. Sheriff's deputies were sent to 47-year-old Deborah Dalzell's home on March 29, 1999, after concerned co-workers contacted them. It was past 8 a.m. and she hadn't shown up for work. 
When they arrived at her home, they found Delzo's body. She had been gagged, beaten, raped, and strangled. Luke Fleming, age 39, was arrested this past September after DNA left at the crime scene was linked to him through genetic genealogy. And as we mentioned, this is far from a complete list. We can't keep up with the rate at which these cases are being solved. There have also been several rape cases solved using genetic genealogy. And again, it will be interesting to see which cases are solved next. This season was all about DNA and how Parabon, GEDmatch, genetic genealogy, and people like Colleen Fitzpatrick helped solve some of these long-standing mysteries. We hope that we were able to really help listeners understand the entire process used in solving these crimes. And thanks again to our guests this season, Steve Armantrout from Parabon, Paul Holes, Curtis Rogers of GEDmatch, and genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick. So, Morph, this wraps up Season 4. We're going to take a brief hiatus to work on Season 5, but it won't be that long. We will be back with some new episodes. In the meantime, we're going to be working on some really good stuff, and we hope to have some big news for you around the first of the year. We also want to let you know that we'll be releasing material on our Patreon feed, so keep an eye on that for you Patreon supporters, or for those of you that have been thinking about signing up for Patreon. If you like the show, please take a minute. If you haven't already, go out, give us a five-star rating. That goes a long way towards helping new people find the podcast. You can also find us on social media, on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod, or by searching for us on Facebook by searching for Criminology Podcast. You can also join the discussion group on Facebook called criminology discussion and fans and as we leave we hope you'll listen to these previews of generation y and the minds of madness these are two of our favorite true crime podcasts and two of the best in the business how you doing tonight aaron i'm doing fine justin how are you i'm doing great we are the generation y and we've been around quite a while since 2012 we've been doing true crime murder mysteries conspiracies controversies wrongful convictions missing persons cases anything and everything under the sun here's what you can expect they didn't know it but they were 1000 feet or so from where these three girls were being held captive when he brings these young ladies back to his house they would have this chain wrapped around their neck and their stomachs. And they're beaten. Under the control of a psycho. I mean, he lied about everything. Now you can't trust anything he's done. I think this is anyone's worst nightmare. These women were killed in one place and then taken and dumped somewhere else. That chaos, that unpredictability made him so terrorizing. The strongest evidence they have is the eyewitness testimony of a six-year-old boy. He placed his body underneath the house. I think this is less of a story about a monster and more of a story about survival. We're Generation Y. Look us up on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app and hit the subscribe button. Nine one one. what's your emergency? Every 60 seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. What causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things? He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that examines the most disturbing criminal minds we shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play.